are listening to Oblivion. It is June 21st, 2021. Well, uh, why don't we start with some uh, breaking news? Uh, All right. Supreme Court ruling on the NCAA. Uh, did you hear about this? You read about this? You heard about this? Uh, I've heard about a couple of them uh, recently. Uh, Supreme Supreme Court backs payments to student athletes in NCAA case. Well, just came out of really. I was in- actually getting ready to read that uh, yeah. shortly before we uh, started yeah. the. So let me fill you in, yeah. and then you can comment. All right. The NCAA argued that the payments were a threat to amateurism, and that barring them did not violate the antitrust laws. Uh, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled on Monday that the NCAA cannot bar relatively modest payments to student athletes in a decision that questioned the association's monopoly power at a time when the business model of college sports is under increasing pressure. The decision concerned only payments and other benefits related to education, but its logic suggested that the court may be open to a frontal challenge to the NCAA's ban on paying athletes for their precipita- participation, participation and sports that bring billions of dollars of revenue to American colleges and universities. In a concurring opinion, Justice Brett M. Kavanaugh seemed to invite such a challenge. Nowhere else in America, this is Kavanaugh, nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that their product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate, Justice Kavanaugh wrote, and under ordinary Principles of antitrust law, it is not evident why college sports should be any different. NCAA is not above the law. So that's um, pretty strong words from old Rapey Kavanaugh. (laughs) All those uh, keg parties before the sports game paid off with his legal expertise. So, well, let me ask you a question at first. I get, like so many court rulings, it's just uh, seems to be deliberately uh, effusive. It, it sounded like at the beginning that they were saying that the amateur status didn't violate antitrust laws. In which case, it, it, it's they're saying it's still okay for the NCAA not to pay them, but then toward the end it says. Well, that they could be paid and that they're open to a challenge hmm. that they should be paid. The athletes should be paid. But if it's if this is the Supreme Court, where's the challenge going to come from? I thought the whole point of the Supreme Court was that was it that decides it. In- well, I, yeah, it was it hasn't decided the uh, direct payments part, uh, but it's, <clears throat> you know, it's only concerning that one part of it. Uh, but um, it's looking like it's heading that way just because it's, it's finally becoming so clear. Uh, uh, How insanely exploited. Yeah, right. Uh, let's see, I'll, I'll read on. In Monday's decision, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch writing for the court took a measured approach, saying that his task was merely to assess a limited injunction entered by a trial judge, one that allowed payments for things like musical instruments, scientific equipment, postgraduate scholarships, tutoring, study abroad, academic awards, and internships, did not permit the outright payment of salaries. Some will think the district court did not go far enough, Justice Gorsuch wrote, by permitting colleges and universities to offer enhanced education-related benefits. This decision may encourage scholastic achievement and allow student-athletes a measure of compensation more consistent with the value they bring to their schools. Still, some will see this as a poor substitute for fuller relief. At the same time, others will think the district court went too far by undervaluing the social benefits associated with amateur athletics, he added. Justice Kavanaugh's concurring opinion was bolder. The NCAA couches its arguments for not paying student-athletes in innocuous labels, he wrote, but the labels cannot disguise the reality. The NCAA's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. All of the restaurants in a region cannot come together to cut cooks' wages on the theory that customers prefer to eat food from low-paid cooks. Law firms cannot conspire to cabin lawyers' salaries in the name of providing legal services out of a love of the law. (laughs) 
price fixing labor is price fixing labor, Kavanaugh wrote, and price fixing labor is ordinarily a textbook antitrust problem because it extinguishes the free market in which individuals can otherwise obtain fair compensation for their work. So that part actually sounds good, regardless of what you think about uh, Kavanaugh. Well, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I agree with it too. I mean, yeah. that kind of says the uh, that kind of makes the point. But the irony is that the way that the NCAA operates is actually so typical of American labor. Like when the mentioning of the of the restaurants, I mean, that's all restaurants are. Is you have a few people at the top, like with McDonald's. I mean, McDonald's is a restaurant, right? Right. The CEO makes a fortune. And then the people who are doing the actual labor don't make anything. And really, it was the pandemic that totally brought to light that the, the real backbone of, of America are these low paid workers. I mean, the people who drove the trucks and uh, worked in the grocery stores, worked in the meatpacking plants, the people who kept us fed uh, for an entire year putting their lives on the line uh, that I think ties into the continued labor shortage and people quitting their jobs and a sense of more leverage among workers, which we can get to in a, in a second. Um, but uh, so there's an irony there. I mean, I, I, I like the things that Kavanaugh is saying and they're, they're true. The idea that you can't uh, deliberately lowball lawyers and affirm because they they practice law for the love of the law that's that's pretty good because that's such a typical ncaa it's the love of sports the great college experience and of course the espn basketball announcers are some of the worst about um, beating this into the ground big vital especially saying oh that college experience these are the best days of your life don't go pro this is so great and, and it's this just um it's this uh fantasy it's this hallucination that he's talking about it's like when they opened the fried chicken arena in downtown louisville and they kept talking about you can just feel the change in downtown and whatever happened to the uh, business person is this number crunching analytical rational person that doesn't care about if the downtown is vibrant or if you have a sense of community or or, or this stuff right you just does is something profitable is, is can you can you fund it? You know, where is the money going to come from? Can you keep it operational? Those very basic pragmatic ways of thinking always are disappearing. It makes me think of that uh, uh, nightmarish article that the uh, I think the president of, of, of the University of Kentucky and the, the, some of the high ranking people from the arts and sciences wrote an article about defending the insane amount of money that's spent on um, sports, uh, particularly uh, basketball, and they, they flat out said in their letter to the editor that the March Madness creates a uh, sense of, of vibrancy in community that, you know, otherwise isn't there. And you have, there are these high-ranking uh, academic officials saying that learning is boring, and that, you, that a university is supposed to be this place not where you're going to be uh, stimulated and challenged to go there because you're going to be around other people who are really motivated to learn and you're all pursuing this common goal of, of uh, education and enlightenment, uh, but that you're going to go through this uh, uh, boring institutional process that is uh, peppered in with this adrenaline rush of big time uh, college sports. Um, so that's kind of the social and cultural commentary to bring it back to the more specific issue of paying the athletes. I think the whole thing is a sham and it just needs to be shut down. I, I don't think that there is any more it's that the situation is any more just by paying or compensating athletes in any way, shape or form. And I'll say this, as I said before, because nearly all of these people, are not good enough to be professional athletes. So what I'm, I am not advocating for the status quo, which the antagonistic listener could shove down my throat and say that I'm doing it. Oh, you think they shouldn't be paid? No, what I'm saying is that nobody should be paid because this stuff shouldn't exist. 
It's a waste. And the real vulnerability of this from a financial standpoint is it's impossible to see how these profits could continue to be profitable. Uh, I'm sorry, how these programs could continue to be profitable if the day ever comes when the NCAA has to start paying the players their fair share of the market value. Because as soon as a $9 million college basketball coach is coaching players who can get paid, well, if the coach is worth $9 million, the players have to be worth more than that, right? Because they're the ones actually out there doing it. Right, right. So if you look at it that way, I mean, look at the NBA. I'm pretty sure, for example, that LeBron James makes more than the coach of the Lakers. Yeah, yeah. And don't kid yourself. Who do you think is really coaching that team? Like, you think the coach is ever going to take LeBron out and chew him out and – you're part of this team, LeBron. Well, have, be a team player. Have, yeah, well, how about he this? The whole organization, and he runs it like, I want this player, I want this guy gone, you need to bring this person well, in, you need to play. Look, look at it this way. Would, would it be more fair or acceptable if uh, the coaches' salaries were greatly reduced into, you know, let's say uh, lower six figures, like you would, you know, less a doctor or less, you know, kind of salary uh <laughs> and then you know the uh students were paid a pretty good wage you know like i don't know fifty thousand dollars a piece or, and your schooling would that be acceptable you think or do you think well, have, I, having it linked I, in I, with I, the I college like, is yeah right go on sorry no i uh i like the way that that you're you're thinking there i mean that mm. that is along the lines of my thinking but the problem is, is that uh, it is not compatible with reality. Because the fact is, is that these sports ha have generated, and as long as they're allowed to continue to exist, will generate incredible sums of money. So once upon a time, the, the thing that you're talking about could have happened, for example. Well, and I guess, okay, to, to play on that, here's something that I have thought about. What if they did something where uh, they, they arranged it the way that, that you're saying, that the, that the coach can't make uh, any more money than the aggregate salary of a tenured faculty member nationwide, right. whatever yeah. that aggregate is. Like, yeah, that's yeah. what you make. Right, right. That's, it can't go, if you want to coach college, you can do that, mm -hmm. and then, uh, and you would have to make it where they would have to do they the coaches would also have to do some kind of of teaching, right? They couldn't just be the basketball coach and say I'm bringing in tons of yeah. money into the That's city, a great idea. Yeah. right? But but where does it go? Like you bring it all in, <laughs> and it all goes to you. Like, right. like John Calipari brings in a lot of money into Lexington, and nine million dollars of it goes to him, and then. What what's left of it that doesn't go to Mitch Barnhart, the athletic director, and a few other top people is then just like a piggy bank that you open up and you let it fly over, all over the floor and it just sort of lands wherever it does. But the average person in Lexington, Kentucky, in no way whatsoever benefits from John Calipari making $9 million a year. The opposite is true. Like the fact that he is this devourer, like these other coaches and like anything in American society where you have the top person, the hierarchy, right? The person at the top of the hierarchy bringing a fortune. The CEO is, a, is another good example of the corporation that diminishes uh, the, the money that people, uh, that everybody else uh, uh, can get. And it also diminishes the value of the labor that they perform. Right, because people just see it as well. This doesn't really matter. It's what this one guy does that is so great and makes it all work. But again, to go back to the pandemic, that showed us that the inverse is true. That is definitely not true. Like if we can't eat, we can't live. Right, and it's the lowest-paid people who were the heroes and kept us alive. Those people did real work. Like it was labor and it required courage and skill under pressure and they deliver. So we're still alive. Then of course you have the expertise with the vaccine. Um, 
But anyway, I thought this about here's one scenario that could have happened. So the you know, NCAA basketball generates billions of dollars and the NCAA tournament alone generates billions of dollars. So what if there was a system set up that instead of saying this is free market money for the capitalists, right, which a few at the top are gobbling most of it up, right, the television networks and the the big corporate advertisers and the top executives, what if all of that money that was generated was then directly reinvested into public higher education, right? And so then that was where, that's where you get your money for things like tuition-free public college and university and student loan debt forgiveness. See where I'm, what I, yeah. how I'm. Correct, yeah. But, but that scenario doesn't happen. So uh, second to what I'm advocating for, I would agree with what you said, that if you bring the coaches' salaries down, you say that since this is amateur, that's what's so stupid and so blatantly hypocritical about it is you can't talk about how important it is that it's amateur and then have anyone making this kind of insane money <laughs> off of it. That's what's so stupid right? If your own words are, we're doing it for the love of the game, well, then you tell John Calipari, you get to do what you love for a living, and that's why you're doing it. So you're going to make, well, you know, aggregate salary of a tenured faculty member at the University of Kentucky is, um, Mm -hmm. say, $84,000 a year, and that's it. Take it or leave it. You think you're good enough to coach in the pros, like you coached in the, the, uh, uh, you coached the New Jersey Nets and got destroyed Mm -hmm. by Michael Jordan, and I think he lasted three years as a head coach in the NBA, right? That's something that uh, people forget, along with trying to very quickly forget about last year's 9-16 and 16, uh, season. By the way, uh, I think you'll be interested to, to know, um, Dave, I am going to start making documentaries. And this, this winter, I'm going to make a documentary called uh, A Million Dollars a Win which is going to be about Kentucky basketball, John Calipari um, making $9 million to win <laughs> nine games. And even I can do the math on that one. That was a, you know, to go back to my point about how the money Calipari brings in is so great for Lexington. Like, is it really worth it? But how long does the basketball game last? It's this dreary, horrible season where you lost twice as many games as you won. Like it's just, it was just so bad, and the game. Many of the games they just got killed, and they were bad all year long. Like they never put it together for a second. And they uh, was it really worth? Well, it? they won those nine games, man. They like, did great in those games. <laughs> for two hours, you live in Lexington, Kentucky. For two hours, you get to sit there and watch a game, and it's worth that guy making a million dollars for that two hours. And then take an honest look at what your life is like. You know, like you have this Saturday afternoon off, right? But what do you really think? Well, I got to get up and I got to go to work on Sunday. And then I've got, you know, Tuesday off. But then I have to work eight straight days after that. And you know, I might have to get a second job because of you know, I'm not making enough money. And no one ever gets sick of this. Although the trends about people quitting their jobs and just not going back to work and Mm-hmm. Uh, a renewed emphasis on personal happiness that uh, those things suggest that maybe that's that's happening but the um, i think that the that the real point that needs to be um introduced and boldly and loudly reinforced relentlessly is that all of this stuff has got to go and to, just to uh, to finish at least my end on well, by, by all, all of this stuff, well, I d- define that kind of clearly. So, NCAA sports has mm. to go. Thank you. That I'm glad you asked me to do that. That was a little vague for a crescendo <laughs> point. Yeah. All this yeah. stuff. Wow, he's so articulate. <laughs> NCAA sports has got to be shut down. That's the real problem. Is that it exists, and I just think it's so met- metastasized and toxic that it's totally unrealistic to think it could be fixed as it were. If the day ever comes where you have to start paying someone like Anthony Davis $4 million just to play one season at Kentucky, well then 
by virtue of the free market dynamics that Kavanaugh is citing, and I think he's correct to do so, uh, well, what does that do? That immediately just uh, very, you know, rapidly and extremely accelerates everyone else's um, value, right? Because Anthony Davis isn't worth anything if he doesn't have a league to play in. And to have a league to play in, there have to be other teams, there have to be other players. And there are something like 315 Division I NCAA teams. And you have 15 players on each of these teams. Well, I mean, that's, what, over 4,500 people that you're going to have to pay a million dollars. <laughs> Otherwise, it'd be like, why should I show up to practice? Man, it's, just a cool, it's just a cool $5.5 million, man. That's no problem. Well, I mean, add all of all of – how much is that? $5.5 million. Uh, if it's a million no, it's a person, good. if fifty five hundred million is five billion five hundred million. So yeah, if, if now let, wait a second, let's say that there are three hundred Division One teams with fifteen players. Right. So that's four thousand five hundred. Okay, right? I, I'm sorry, five a uh, four billion five hundred. Yeah, because yeah, it's it's got to be how many zeros is that? You've got the you know six zeros. For the for the million, and then you've got the uh, four zeros for the four thousand five hundred, or no, the two zeros. So that's eight zeros. That's a lot of money. So the point is, is that it would no longer be profitable. And the very thing that that prompted the the writing of that letter to the editor in 2017 by the uh, one of the Kentucky deans and the president and some of the high-ranking arts and sciences people in defense of, of March Madness and, and Kentucky basketball was a, a piece uh, done by the Washington Post that showed that most of these big-time football and basketball programs are not profitable and that Kentucky is the exception, right? The, the money, they, they do bring in a lot of money, but they spend so much, right? You spend a fortune on your coaches, on your facilities, your stadiums, and the travel right and then you have to bring all of these people and they they're going to stay at a pretty nice place and you know they're they're greedy right they're going to go to nice restaurants and they're winners they're the alpha people so they're worth it so that's the whole problem is if it ever came if you were going to make it fair and you were going to pay these people then uh the whole thing would just uh totally and utterly collapse and then the whole university system would be in bad shape because it's built around that which is another major problem is that your university should not be built around sports they yeah. should be built around and, education and i was thinking the next step that has to i mean if you're going to say we get rid of the ncaa um then there's the whole athletic structure that's got to go um and of course, this is all associated with you were suggesting one solution uh, would be, say, to pay the coach uh, a tenured you know, uh, uh, professor right. salary. Yeah, but what would, of course, happen would be this new thing that's infected, well, new in the last 50 years for the most part. Uh, infection of academia is the administration administrative class that is taken over uh, all the high salaries. It's kind of like the, uh, uh, you know, it is the managerial uh, model, business model has infected the what was once the not much better guild model. Uh, right, that's well said. Yeah, and um, so it, it, there you go. I mean, you peel off one part of the onion and you get to the other. Right. Uh, Let's go back to this idea of, of, of fairness for a second. Like imagine mm. if you're um, an undergraduate student at a place like um, Murray State mm. and um, you always go to class, you have a really high GPA, <laughs> you're working part time and, and you're also uh, tutoring other students and other than your the part-time job that you have which isn't paying you anything right you are making zero 
you're making no money at all. Right. Now, here comes a walk-on from <laughs> McCracken County High School who, because he comes from a popular, well-liked, influential, long-standing Jackson Purchase family, um, gets to dress on the Murray State basketball team. And who else is on that Murray State team? John Morant, who's the number two draft pick in the NBA. Well, Morant is worth as much as anybody in college basketball. So Morant's has to get paid something like $6 million to play that one season at Murray State. No, I'm sorry. He stayed two years. So he gets, he gets $3.5 million his first year, and he gets $6 million his, his second year. Now, explain to me how it's fair that if you're an undergraduate busting your brains out to do very well in your academic work, and your um, annual income is $11,000. And here is this walk-on from McCracken County who, because he's on the team, and you can't have Morant without the team, he's on the team that Morant is on, and so this guy is going to get, well, what would a low-end NBA player get? Because that's basically what you're talking about, right? He's going to professionalize it. Well, this guy is going to make $800,000 at least a year to be a practice player. And it just so happens that he's tall and has this one athletic skill. And this other person is doing a great job academically and is making $11,000 a year. And that's what your university situation is. So, if you if you have this artificial um, perspective on fairness and equality or, or what you consider unequal, well, the players are bringing in all this money and the coaches get all of it and the players don't get anything. That's unfair. Okay, but then how is it fair that a walk-on, a practice player, would make $800,000 while your average college student is, is working uh, – just as hard, if not harder, and is making below $10,000 a year. How has this created anything that's uh, any, any better, right? You've just added more <laughs> insult over, you've added more greatly overvalued people to the labor pool. Right. right. And you've, you've further just, you know, like you could say already, it's bad enough that, you have somebody who is uh, doing an excellent job academically at Murray State or, say, UK. Uh, but that person doesn't have a scholarship. They've got to pay their tuition. They're not making any money at all, and they're working a lot. And so then, of course, that financial stress builds up on them, right? They can't really feel that good about their academic work because they're they're digging themselves into a financial hole. So... Meanwhile, you have this other person who just because they happen to be six foot seven instead of five foot ten, they get to be on the basketball team. Everything is paid for. They get to stay in this resort for a dorm, three meals. They get to go to Hawaii for a basketball tournament. Um, and then if they uh, aren't good enough to play in the pros, they can go play somewhere in Europe. Yeah. And until this is actually, um, yeah, until that, until there's a, until there is a, a, a some justice. <laughs> well, until it's looked at in terms of these the sports programs as part of the university, right? That you have to mm -hmm. look at every college student and to think about what their situation is, how hard they're working the work that they're doing, right? That it's educational. It's, they're not just playing sports mm -hmm. yeah. in terms of why they're there um, and what their uh, financial situation is like. And it, you can't talk about fairness and then ignore that end of it. But the truth is most of these college athletes are not good enough to make a living playing sports. Right. So, 
they should not be paid. Too bad, right? Either, you know, try out for the pro team, and if you can actually make it, then you should be paid. Otherwise, you're like the rest of us, and you have to deal with what your the system that you live in actually is. You have to deal with the extreme inequality just like the rest of us. Indeed, but the goal eventually being that there would be equality and uh, uh, we'd all be getting paid, man. All be getting paid. Right, or like you, as you put it, um, no one would be getting paid this insane, this insane amount of money and we wouldn't have this uh, ridiculous hierarchy that distorts uh, the value of, of people's labor and it just warps it in this uh, crazed way uh, that, that it does. It, it so, reminds yeah. me of, let's, they say... Yeah, so let's transition uh, that. Uh, we'll finish that thought and we'll make the transition. I've got it well, keyed up. Well, I say in Denmark... Um, it's uh, it's hard to get rich, but it's even harder to get poor. Right, right, yeah. That, that kind of a system. Yeah, yeah. American would say, oh, you have to pay all these taxes, and the, how come the salary isn't that much? It's like, well, it's living on your you're living on the street. That's your fault. You, <laughs> right. Suck it up, bitch. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Speaking of, uh, uh, <laughs> um things that are overrated uh the biden approval rating i guess is still high for some reason well no the last i checked oh. for the first time i think it had gone below 50 percent now oh, i really? invite you and the listener of course to <laughs> verify this yeah uh, um but this was just recently and what i think happened was when biden got back from his overseas uh summit in geneva where he met putin um price of gas went up and this the there's a sense that you know biden just is kind of non-existent uh and it you know kind of made me think of some of the uh some of the <laughs> criticisms that people had of, of donald trump is that you know trump is just so abrasive and and loud and always hogging the spotlight and you, you don't want to constantly being uh, be hearing from your your president and i agree with that um but you know, uh, turn, the, <clears throat> turn the music down doesn't mean turn the music off. Right. So here's uh, five days ago, New York Times: uh, Biden's approval takes a hit, driven by sagging hopes among Democrats. Hmm. The standstill in Washington has left many Democrats feeling impatient. A new poll suggests. Interesting. President Biden's approval rating has taken a dip in recent weeks, but it's not even close to the drop in support for Congress's performance as negotiations over legislation in Washington have ground to a virtual standstill. That's the top line takeaway from a national poll released on Wednesday by Mammoth University. But here's the secondary message. Democrats are the ones growing most disillusioned and fast. Back in April, when Mr. Biden was making big legislative strides, uh, not for us, but anyway, 83% of Democrats no said, okay. said they thought the country was moving in the right direction according to a Monmouth survey at the time, but in Wednesday's poll, just 59% of Democrats said that. The share of Democrats saying the country was on the wrong track rose by 20 percentage points to 32%. People are anxious, and look, Biden has such success at the outset of the COVID relief package that it's probably got people's expectations up very high about how much could be done and how soon. Well, now reality is intruding. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't put it that way, but anyway, I didn't write that. So the $1.9 trillion economic brief bill, blah, 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 was favorable, but, you know, I think it's bullshit. So, um, so. Does it give yeah. an actual number of his approval? Is it still above 50%? E yeah, but it was just above. Um, like 54? Let's, let's, let's look at this other one from us. And news. Uh, Joe Button title is Joe Biden approval rating down with Democrats, but up eight percent with Republicans. So that's interesting. <laughs> that tells you something too, isn't it? Uh, uh, I, yeah, it's the same state of the Monmouth 
thing. So Biden's approval rating now stands at 48% against 43% disapproval. Biden is six points since April. Yep, so there's your... And there were a couple of other things that I read about Biden. One was um, that some of the top-level Trump administrative people have been allowed to stay on, which I think Obama did with the Bush people. And then the other thing that I read about Biden was that um, he's given some, um, like, some of the people on his staff some of their relatives have uh, high-paying federal government jobs. Like the press secretary, Jen uh, Psaki, has a relative, someone who has a good-paying federal job. People criticize him of that. But then did you see the the topic that I sent you about (laughs) that that representative from Texas who – Congressman Jackson undergo a cognitive test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what was the? It was just why did he? What well, was there any performance pre- in um, in in Geneva? Was oh yeah, was it the, comical? <laughs> right. That it that it uh, that that Biden just didn't look like he was all there, and that that he should undergo a, a cognitive test. And I mean, you've been saying this about Biden for. <laughs> A year at least, and mm-hmm. I agree. But he's certainly senile. But then the the really undeniable thing, and this gets back to I think Biden's plummeting approval numbers, is that uh, that that Biden just seems like he's not even there. Like we just don't have a president. <laughs> like I'd never hear him say anything, and uh, he doesn't seem to be advocating for a certain vision or agenda and and i think that the that the summit in geneva was classic joe foreign policy biden where it's this uh, reenactment of the 20th century role of the american president where it's all about foreign policy and we just assume that america is so great and amazing that we don't actually need to work on anything here in america there are no actual problems in america uh, is like you were saying earlier, if if you personally have a problem, well, it's your problem because you are a bad person, a screw up, or or, or something or other. But uh, but th- there isn't any sense that that Joe Biden is really focused on the American people. Yeah, uh, totally agree, and. Um, yeah, it, it will be interesting to see if his disease progresses. How far, <laughs> how far does it have to go before finally, you know, the powers that be are going to be like, oh, well, I guess this is what's happening. And this is. The- <laughs> tell me what you think, but but I just I think Reagan at least had charisma. You know, he could go somewhere, yeah. or he could be in front of the camera, and, and he he at least yeah. appeared to be alive. Well, and I I kind of think because he was probably the same age as Biden when it really got bad later on. You know, it was pretty much the second. Uh, You can really notice it in the second. You're right. That's uh, good to point out. It was eight years. I mean, so, yeah, toward the end, and and really wasn't that when Nancy was kind of trying to just get (laughs) in there and take over? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, she was kind of having to say, him video of her feeding him lines, you know, because he just kind of wandered off in his mind. And of course, he always read cue cards. I mean, right, always there's also that. a famous uh, uh, shot of uh, Donald Regan, uh, the uh, big business person, like getting in his ear, telling him what to say <laughs> when he's at the stock exchange talking about how America was back or something. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, because at some point he, it's just not going to be. Um, yeah, you know, who knows? I mean, it's all—it's always individual, so he can just kind of coast along at this level. But it usually doesn't work that way. It's usually he's progressive. And it's always going to progress worse. Uh, but he may not make it to a second term because, um, as we, these polls are showing, 
people are already Democrats are already feeling frustrated, and it's not all just that they're. Uh, uh, well, I, I, certainly the progressive Democrats, how, how could they be satisfied with any of it? I mean, how would they say it at first? Apparently a lot of, well, of course, the AOC was talking about how the, you know, Biden's FDR and transformative and all this. Oh, my God. Horseshit. Uh, <laughs> 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 so, uh, you know. The supposedly when you got supposedly the uh, progressive uh, people so saying that, what do you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so any, anybody, anyway, AOC is not a real person, really. So, so I think real people, or it's just obvious that we're not getting shit, you know. Right. Uh, and um, this is going to continue. Uh, do you think that the Biden administration is going to turn around and? And no, I mean, I, I think that, um, and one of the reasons that I, I had that uh, Valentine's Day deadline for the Democrats were either <laughs> going to get pot legal or I was done with them. Your, is, your dear John letter on Valentine's Day. Yeah, is that um, I, I just think that the really the, the early days, certainly the, the early months, of, of a new presidential administration, certainly when there's a shift from one party to the other, are very uh, uh, significant. And I just think that the, that the obvious stall tactic is if you can just get through that first six months and not do anything, you've conditioned people to just accept that nothing is going to happen. And by then you can get to the end of that first year. Then you can start talking about midterms, and it, it gets back to what I was saying about. Oh, so they'll start, start promising promising it again. And well, it, it, I, what I mean by this is that instead of you know what are you going to do, all the focus can turn to we've got to keep these seats. We we can't lose this or that. Just simply talking about the election and never talking about. When when are you going to federally legalize pot? And why didn't you just go ahead and make that one of the top things you were going to do when you uh, when you had five out of five states uh, on election day voting to do it? And that being the perfect bipartisan issue where it was a range of say one liberal state in New Jersey. And then really four other states that were conservative and, and very conservative in the case of South Dakota votes to legalize uh, pot and they just do nothing with it um, at all. So if, if they're never going to be, be serious and vocal and, and uh, strategic and organized about getting these things done in this predictable um, going in circles with the Republicans who we all know that all they're ever going to do is, is say no and shut things down. Then um, I think that's kind of the, the, the game plan is you just, you get keep people to accept that, okay, we're in power. We're trying to get these things done. It's not working, but okay. Now we can forget about that because well, now let's look at this race in, in, in the house. And, and this is in, in Arkansas. And now this is going to be between this person and this person, and this person is backed by uh, this person, and the opponent is backed by these people. And here's why the Democrats need to hold on to this seat. Now, if we break this down into the, the demographics of the precincts and where the voting is going to be, here are the results from 2020, and we can collate this from 2018 and 2016. So now it's really important that this you see what I mean, and they, they start talking about these uh, self-involved, it's, it's details without a big picture. It's meaningless. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so it's uh, anti-politics. It's just, uh, put all, put it's the the big, the big the big show to pretend like. Uh, You're cutting out there. Are you, are you? Did you move around? Uh, I just um, 
I just went to get a uh, refill of coffee. Oh, okay, yeah. It, it was cutting out there. Yeah, I'm just saying that it's all it's it's self-serving. It's just like this person wants to be a politician, and that's all we're supposed to care about. Thunder. I think thunder. That oh, was a good that, thunder there. <laughs> yeah, that was a good coda to your statement. Yeah, we're having some uh, storms move through here this afternoon. We've had a little bit of uh, rumbling going on uh, during the podcast. But it hasn't gotten, they said uh, we might get hail and uh, torrential downpours, and we really haven't had anything like that yet. Well, let's see. uh, um, What was Connecticut on the list? Uh, Connecticut uh, vote has voted to uh, legalize marijuana. So this uh, is yet another opportunity where how many states would have to do it? If you think about Kairos, like the timing when you have your window of opportunity strike mm-hmm. while the iron's hot, if, if you follow mm-hmm. my, my drift here, how many times would yet another state have to legalize before the White House, the Congress would say, let's just go ahead and make it federally legal? And they just obviously refuse to do it because they're against it. They, the, the Democrats are against it. They, it's, it's low class. They, they look down on it. They want to beat people down. They, they say that they're against uh, Republican uh, bad actors like Donald Trump and Richard Nixon, but they are 100% in favor of their policies. I mean, pot prohibition, the, the war, prohibition in the sense that there's a war on it is all Nixon's idea. Like it's one thing that something is on the books illegal, but it's another thing when it becomes an enforcement priority. 50 years, you know, not, nothing's been done. And it, it's, it's, they just want to beat people down. It's all they care about. And it's Joe Biden's way of saying, look at what a great leader in and protecting the children. I'm going to save America from the, uh, the pot smoking underground people that are going to infiltrate let uh, communists infiltrate America and we'll all be slackers and not have good work ethic and morals and our, the fabric of our society will weaken. It's just total reform madness. Oh, this is great. This is something I read shortly before the podcast that there's a study as more and more States legalize. I'm seeing more and more, um, articles by the, of course, super conservative American medical community about the dangers of pot. And the, this last one is from the uh, jur- the uh, JAMA Journal of uh, American Medical uh, uh, Association, mm-hmm. Journal of the American Medical Association, I think is what it stands for. So this ar- article says that for every five years a person smokes pot, they lose 15 words from their vocabulary or they, they know 15 fewer words. It's a cognitive test that they give people. And they say, even when you account for differences in education and so forth, only pot smoking stands out as a, as a, as a causal factor of why this happened. So there's a cognitive test and I guess it's about recall and they give you a certain number of words. And they say that for, Every five years you smoke pot, you lose these 15 words. And it's just, it's one of these literacy myth things where, so are you going to tell me that songwriters don't have good vocabularies? And there aren't any songwriters who smoke pot. And there aren't any uh, well, well, writers uh, or poets or... Yeah, who are good with words who use pot. I mean, and another question is maybe some of these fifteen words should have been forgotten. <laughs> uh, exactly. Like, <laughs> what is the big deal of that? You, it's like saying, how well do you do in a spelling bee? And you get to the later rounds of spelling bee, and they're pulling out these words that they're <laughs> obsolete. Like, who cares? Like, you can't spell it. Well, what difference does it make? No one uses it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Right, it's pedantic. It's this, it's this self-important pedantic approach to understanding cognition. 
Like, so what? And, and then, but furthermore, where is the where is the inference to be made that because there's a certain result on this one cognitive test that it means anything? That it means anything bad? That it means anything about how smart you are? How sharp you are? Emotionally, I mean, it's like, well, I have a great vocabulary recall. I'm totally depressed. I weigh 300 pounds. I'm uh, diabetic. I mean, it, it's just that, like, there, here's two words that we're never going to forget. Reefer madness. <laughs> Reefer madness. <sighs> yep. And, um, Maybe we should get uh, going towards uh, predictions. Uh, another thing I recently read yeah. was that they're, uh, they, they are starting to make uh, predictions about a dire fall in terms of the coronavirus in areas that have low vaccination rates. Mm -hmm. And to bring it back to Joe Biden, I think we definitely have to, uh, is excoriate a good word? Really <laughs> tear him a new asshole? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what's the fan? I forgot the word, man. I forgot it yesterday. It was word of 15. Well, now let's see. How many years has it been? So, oh, my God, that's got to be, what, six, seven hundred words I don't know now? How am I going to be able to finish this in? Uh, uh, I don't. I, uh, but I forgot the word there. Here's one, here's one example to to show you how stupid this uh, this uh, JAMA um, study is, like, why not, if you're going to start to make these claims, why not do some sort of uh, secondary or supplemental methodology to test for the same result? In other words, why don't you just uh, get these people and, and just let them talk for 30 minutes or have them write something about a, a, a a significant moment in, in their lives, right? And see if in listening to them or reading them, uh, does it seem like they have a problem with, well, they can't finish the sentence because they, they've run out of words, <laughs> right? Versus yeah. this idea, which, which is, it's a lot like, you know, pedantic academia is, you know, can I show off my vocabulary in the way that I write? Can I purposely put words uh, in here that, uh, are big words, as as it were. And the thing is, th this is how America works. So when I was 12 years old, I was really into building my vocabulary. This was the same time I was learning about the space programs, right? The astronauts and cosmonauts and getting to the moon, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and all that. So uh, people eviscerated me for that and for being a weirdo goofball. And then all these years later, then it's like, now I'm just supposed to assume that I don't know my words anymore. And now that's bad. So what do you, what do you want? I mean, you, you have a big vocabulary, that's bad. You, your, your vocabulary diminishes in words, that's also bad. I mean, it just it sounds like that there's, there's no way you can, you can do anything uh, to, to please these people. So anyway, the, the idea of the vaccination is uh, that should be something that Biden's got to be uh, ripped apart for, is that by now America should have herd immunity. And he had the advantage that Donald Trump did not have, which is that before Biden became president, he knew he was going to have to deal with this problem. I'm surprised to see that um, actually the doses per day has been continuously going up. Since the beginning of June, so low. So there's 1.36 million average doses per day now. Uh, it was down to almost, well, not quite a million, but it's getting around that. But the point is, is that I mean, we're not at herd immunity, are we? Well, I think we're pretty close because of just the how it's gone away so much, right? I mean, that's, no, you got to look at the percentage of people vaccinated because that's what these. Yeah, epidemiologists are saying about this is what the models are showing. This well, but, but like I've like I've mentioned before, there's uh, something that just hasn't really been talked about that I get we can just see it right in front of us is there's the herd immunity thing, uh, theoretical number, 
right? But there's leading up to it, you're getting le- it's less and less able for the virus just to spread because there's more and more people are have immunity. So that's what's happened. That's why it's been going down steadily. Um, you mean because of facts and so forth? Right. Yeah. I mean that that's what's made it go down was the vaccination. So vaccination. why do you think these models are showing that we're going to have a surge in the fall? I, I really don't know. Uh, but, you know, I just I'm bad. So anyway, about it. prediction. Do you think you think then maybe it's not going to happen? But. Um, I I kind of think that it's not because it seems like. Uh, you know, people are still getting it. Uh, the numbers are going up. And of course, it's there is the unknown number um, could be up to 20% of people got it, could even be more, uh, got the disease on top of the people that have the vaccination. Uh, so I think we've gotten pretty close to herd immunity already, uh, just because it's been going away pretty continuously. There's Currently, a flare-up in uh, Missouri and Arkansas. Uh, but there, let's see if it's the places. Uh, uh, so, yeah, the 14-day change. Missouri is up 72%. Uh, it's 11 for 100,000. It's not a huge number, but uh, there's been a couple of regional outbreaks. Uh, I'm not sure what the story is there find out. Arkansas up 52%, eight per 100,000. Oklahoma up 47%. Of, uh, that's just four per 100,000. Utah is up 27. And I'm sure plus 23 now, of course, that's two per 100,000. So they're all pretty low numbers, but there's quite a few that are uh, up. Now, on the other hand, there is a whole long list that are way down. Uh, much longer. Nearly all these, Tennessee's, well, Illinois is 70% down, and it's just one per 100,000. That's pretty amazing. Tennessee, the once uh, uh, highly infected and shameful uh, state and the whole thing, uh, as we've talked about a number of times when it was really bad there, uh, it's down 65% to one per 100,000, very low. South Dakota is down 63%. It's less than one per 100,000 there. It's almost gone from there. Massachusetts down negative 54. Michigan down negative 53. There's another Michigan. Now, you, you kind of wonder, are these states where it really broke out, did they have an advantage with immunity? And if they're tipping over to the herd immunity level, faster than uh, some of the other states. Uh, well, here's something to consider. Um, if I look at uh, Callaway County, here are the numbers, right? The population is uh, 39,000. So round that up to 40,000 to make the, the math easy. Hmm. Uh, the official number of infections, I think, is, is around uh, 3,800, 3,900. So round it up to 4,000 to, again, make make the math easy. And then here's the statistic that stands out for me. 65 and below, it's less than 30% of the local population that's been vaccinated. Now, let's say that the actual number of infections is twice the official number because it's Certainly, almost certainly, more than the official number. So we'll just double it. So say you've got 8,000 with natural immunity out of uh, 40,000 population. That's 20% of your population, right? Mm. And it's still, if you add the 30% of your under 65 population that's vaccinated, you're still only at 50%. So unless something for some unforeseeable reason changes the rate at which people locally are getting vaccinated, it is impossible that there won't be a surge in Callaway County at some point. 
because that's just you just don't have enough. Fifty percent is not enough to to have uh, any sort of partial herd immunity. Yeah, I think I think we just need to keep an eye on Missouri. See if that uh, flares up, cause flare ups uh, farther out of the regions. The significant or, factor is is to think of the uh, vulnerability of younger people. Um, the fact that the variant, the Delta variant, is even more transmissible than the, I think, Alpha variant and the original virus. And the fact that it's these younger people who are um, more mobile. And so I think the thing you want to be careful about when you look at these overall statistics for the percentage of people vaccinated, you, it, it, I think it is good to, to ask, what's the percentage of people who are vaccinated 65 and under. Yeah, so uh, I, can, I can give you those statistics. Okay. Uh, uh, Callaway County uh, is age 65 plus 69% of people are fully vaccinated. Oh, Jesus Christ, man. We just had a big old ooh. Oh, wow. I, heard, I heard the end of it. The front was clipped off, I guess, because it's so loud. <laughs> wow, I'm glad we got that in there before. <laughs> <laughs> Is it just right outside the window? So weird is that uh, the rain had almost stopped and everything kind of got uh, the wind had calmed down, right? And then big flash of, of light of, of lightning, and I you know, wait a second. So I'm uh, anyway. Um, so yeah, so 69% uh, Callaway County of age 65 plus are fully vaccinated. Uh. Age 18 plus 39 percent fully vaccinated. Age right, well, 12 better than, than than I thought. Age 12 plus 37 percent. They finally vaccinated a lot of. I guess they did it at school. Something. the kids pretty quick. 33 uh, percent. Uh, so let's see what Washington. So it's more like 40 percent plus. Say you've got 20 percent natural immunity. So you'd have 60 percent natural immunity instead of 50. Hmm. But see, that's still just not enough. But um, it's it's not enough to totally snuff it out, uh, but I think it's been enough to almost snuff it out, you know. And uh, uh, the thing I just don't see it happening in the fall, because um, I just, I don't think that the, all this vaccine immunity is just going to go away by then. And uh, that will already be built up. There'll be more and more people getting the vaccine. I mean, I was I was heartened by the vaccination rate is still chugging along at a 1.3 million a day. Eventually, that adds up, and that will continue to increase by fall. So, I kind of don't think it's going to. Uh, but yeah, gotta keep our eye on it. <clears throat> so that's my prediction. I don't think it's gonna resurge, and. Uh, uh, and hopefully it'll just totally peter out at one point, uh, maybe by fall. Uh, there's looking at the map, the U.S. map. Now there's big sections of the country that are more rural areas. Like nearly all the plain states are just about like virus-free. You know, it's white. They reported no recent cases. Nebraska is almost totally white now. Kansas is half white. Half just barely there. Uh, South, uh, South Dakota, North Dakota, Montana, Idaho, you know, rural states. Tennessee, well, even Kentucky's starting to get a few counties. Uh, Trigg County, none. Christian County, none. Fulton, Ballard. Uh, right, but it's, it's more a matter of looking down the line in terms of how many people are vaccinated. Yeah, and, and add that to the natural immunity. Right. But I think yeah. maybe you've won me over on this one. If the vaccination rates are continuing, and if it if it's uh, if it's above fifty percent, even in rural areas where people are either vaccinated or have natural immunity, then I, I think you mm. you could be right that mm. um, the virus is just going to be running out of new yeah. places to infect. I do hope. But yeah, I went to kind of the first 
party. Friend had the longest day party this last weekend. Uh, it was out outdoors, but uh, yeah, first time around group like that. Nobody was wearing a mask. Nobody, you know, because everybody was vaccinated. So. Um, yeah, it was kind of nice. Everybody got to tell their stories about, yeah, <laughs> the uh, paranoid time of being afraid of everybody and hold down at home. I'm, I'm glad that's easing. I'm starting to get worrisome. Oh, there's a little frog out here. Isn't that cute? Frog. The the well. bee frog. The bee <laughs> frog is um, a, a rider on the storm. Got <laughs> yeah. two um, door songs in there. Bee frog. Okay, man. Well, good show. Let's hop on out of here. Miller, this is Dr. Dave Overby. You've been listening to the Oblivion Podcast. Boing, boing, boing.